Hi, this is Forrest Coleman, the host of NeuroTalk. As you will likely notice, my side of the interview with Camille Urbill sounds a bit different than usual. This is because, unfortunately, there were some sound difficulties with my side of the original recording, and we have re-recorded the questions that I asked for clarity. Hello. My name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Physiology here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week, our guest is Camille Urbil, a professor of biochemistry, radiology, and medicine at the Center for Magnetic Resonance Research at the University of Minnesota. Thanks for joining us today, Professor. My pleasure. So could you please just talk a little bit about your background and where you grew up and uh, when maybe you decided you wanted to be a scientist? We are going uh, back to very early times. <laughs> so yes, um, well, I'm Turkish. Um, I was born in Turkey in a small town near um, a town, a big city called Izmir. I don't know how far you want to go back, but uh, <laughs> Izmir is an ancient town. Uh, old name is Smyrna. And uh, Homer is thought to be either from Izmir or from the Greek island that is very close to Izmir. So just to put it in some mm. perspective. So outside of this big city in a small farming town, uh, uh, I grew up. And uh, um, I went through my um, education through high school uh, in Turkey. I was lucky enough to... Uh, take advantage of an educational system where you could actually get uh, bilingual education, yeah. in this case English and Turkish, starting at the age of 11. And uh, because by the time I finished high school, I, uh, uh, I was quite fluent in English and uh, I studied science in English. Uh, and the high school that I attended to actually required us to take American SAT exams just to see how they were doing. And I did pretty well in the SAT exam, so I ended up applying to American universities and came to United States uh, to do my undergraduate and graduate work. So I really didn't know what I really wanted to study. I was sort of good at, you know, sciences and uh, mathematics, and I had an inclination in that direction, but career as a scientist was not known at that time in Turkey. Uh, a professor meant you were a teacher at a university, essentially. However, I, I came to Columbia University as an undergraduate and uh, very soon afterwards uh, discovered that I loved physics and decided to pursue physics. So my education, actually, uh, undergraduate and graduate is uh, in physics and, and chemical physics. And so at what point in your graduate career did you start moving towards more biological applications of physics? That is also an interesting question, actually, historically and personally for me, because I was faced with a dilemma when I uh, got my uh, BA degree in physics uh, what, as to what to do, because at that time, all of a sudden, funding for physics research really uh, dramatically decreased, and a lot of physicists were being... Uh, laid off. I mean, they were being laid off right and left, and it didn't look like a career in physics would provide a lot of opportunities for uh, jobs uh, in research. And I was uh, very much interested in uh, high energy physics at that time, but 
looked like a very difficult path given the uh, funding situation and the uh, the job situation. It seems like a perennial perennial problem now. For <laughs> now, it's a perennial problem that affects every single field. But it, at that time, it was really only physics. While physics was suffering, biology was booming, and this was there was quite a bit of excitement about biology. And uh, biology had also become a field where physicists or molecularly oriented people uh, could be interested in. I mean, there was the structure of DNA was solved, and uh, there was a molecular basis to biology as opposed to classical biology, which was uh, sort of like classifying all these plants and cells and animals and things like that. Uh, so there was quite a lot of excitement in uh, biology, and, and there was quite a bit of migration, in fact, uh, of physicists uh, moving away from physics into biology. So I took a year off after my undergraduate work to uh, work in the laboratory of such a physicist, a high-energy particle physicist, uh, Cyrus Leventhal, who had then, uh, at that time, you know, he was working in, uh, in biological problem, and in fact, uh, he made himself a name uh, in protein structure and protein folding, but at that time, when I met him, he was actually working uh, in neurosciences. He was working with electron microscopy of uh, Daphnia brains, sections over development, and he wanted to follow how neurons would, uh, from the eye, would progress to make contact with the brain. And so I became a computer programmer for him, which was sort of my first introduction into neuroscience and really biology. So these were early days of, you know, uh, graphical computers, and so we were trying to digitize, you know, in, a, in something that high energy physicists do did at that time and still do. Uh, so digitize the EM, and then from there, then for able to uh, follow, for example, a particular neuron and all of its uh, branches and how it would actually. Uh, develop from one phase of the animal to the other phase of the animal. But anyway, I mean, that was my introduction into biology, and uh, so I was thinking maybe I will go to graduate school, do a PhD in biology, but uh, it was just then too much biology. and <laughs> <laughs> So I, I moved back to uh, chemical physics, and but worked with biological uh, molecules, but my real introduction into biological sciences came when I started working at Bell Laboratories as a, as a postdoctoral fellow. And uh, there, at that time, there was a new effort in trying to use uh, NMR, uh, nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy, to study intact biological systems. And so uh, I became part of that uh, effort. This was a very new effort. And in fact, I was excited about that. I had various options uh, for postdoctoral fellowship, but I chose this one because I thought this was a very new area. It had not yet made a mark, so to speak, in the, in the world of science, but I thought uh, uh, it had potential and that I could grow with it. And in fact, that's more or less what has happened. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about that. So if I understand the history correctly, you were a postdoc at Bell Laboratory at the time when the bold response was first observed. And later you ran the laboratory where the first fMRI signals from human subjects were obtained. My graduate advisor, David Tank, was also a part of both of those efforts, and he told me a somewhat surprising story about the first time the bold response was ever observed. And so I'm curious as to whether his memory matches with yours. What can you recall about the first bold response experiments? 
Well, uh, let me make a slight correction first. Sure. Uh, so I was not at Bell Labs when the bold response was uh, observed. So I was actually there before. You know, I worked in the biophysics group. Yes, the biophysics group. And uh, Seiji Ogawa was uh, a friend and a colleague at the biophysics uh, group as well. So we did some, uh, you know, we did experiments together and it was a very tightly knit group. So at that time, the neuroscience focus or the brain focus uh, was not quite there at Bell Labs. But there was an exodus from Bell Labs at some point. You know, in this exodus, I also uh, left. Uh, I went to initially Columbia University, back to Columbia as a faculty member. And then I ended up uh, in Minneapolis a few years afterwards. So I was already setting up a laboratory in Minneapolis uh, focused on using magnetic resonance imaging and spectroscopy to study biological processes. And the bold response per se, not functional imaging, let's distinguish that, was then uh, developed by Seiji in Bell Labs after I had left. I was in contact with Seiji, of course, I knew what he was doing, and I was in contact with many of my Bell Labs colleagues, but I wasn't there. Well, there was actually a very intentional shift towards neuroscience in the biophysics department. After a lot of people have left, Bell Labs was trying to decide what to do uh, with this biophysics department, and uh, John Hopfield, who was part of our department, had advised them, well, maybe they can go into neuroscience, and uh, this may be related to their core interests in Bell Labs. And I think that uh, David came to Bell Labs as a result of that switch in direction uh, in the biophysics department. And then Seiji, in this uh, milieu, then started working on the brain. But uh, So he was trying to do high-resolution imaging of, of the brain using great intricate echoes when I think the mouse somehow had difficulty breathing or was dying. He was using a vertical bore magnet, so the mouse was uh, upside down uh, so, you know, it was not a horizontal bore magnet, so the, the mouse had to be oriented vertically, but he had oriented it uh, upside down so that the head was uh, facing down. Yeah. So, of course, yeah. when well, there was a problem with respect to the physiology of the mouse, the blood then not only became deoxygenated, but pooled into the brain. And Seiji noticed that uh, all of a sudden the image... Uh, really became extremely crappy, if you like. <laughs> so this is the story that Seiji tells about when he observed, and he was thinking about why that may have happened. And of course, uh, you know, a lot of discoveries happen uh, because people are very observant and they are ready for unusual yeah. uh, events, and this is an extremely good example. You have to be not only observant, of course, uh, somehow the effect that you see has to have uh, some meaning to you, and uh, Seiji actually had worked on uh, hemoglobin, in fact, at Stanford. He, he did his graduate studies at Stanford, and then later at Bell Labs, he worked on hemoglobin. So he knew hemoglobin very well, mm -hmm. and uh, he knew about the fact that hemoglobin is, you know, paramagnetic uh, when it is deoxygenated, it is diamagnetic uh, when it is oxygenated. So he had, in fact, in the past tried to measure the you know, magnetic moment uh, of uh, hemoglobin. So he knew quite a lot about uh, hemoglobin. And uh, so the observation, I mean, the, the fact that this had taken place, somehow he was, I mean, he was ready. So one of my favorite corollaries to this story is the text in the accompanying paper, which says, quote, 
To exhibit maximal possible contrast, the anesthetized animal was ventilated with 100% nitrogen, leading to isoelectric EEG. The highly deoxygenated blood in the brain under this condition gave very high bold image contrast. And figure 3C is simply labeled 100% N2. Alluding, of course, to the fact that the animal is dead, albeit in a highly uh, convoluted scientific sort of way. <laughs> then he then actually subsequently followed through uh, with making very controlled experiments like changing the oxygen content of the yeah, gas yeah. that the animal was breathing, changing the carbon uh, source that the brain could utilize to utilize oxygen, etc. So those were the experiments that defined this phenomena of how when deoxyhemoglobin content changes, there's an impact on the image contrast. Right. So the bold effect was first reported in that 1990 PNAS paper, but it took a few years before it was working in humans in your lab. And maybe as a precursor question, I should ask you, what is the difference in your mind between bold effect on one hand and fMRI on the other hand? Well, bold was really uh, the reason, uh, in our case at any rate, uh, reason why we pursued functional imaging. So, in fact, uh, this PNAS paper, there was this speculation that maybe this deoxyhemoglobin effect can be utilized for functional imaging. So that's in Sage's paper. And, you know, he was, he and his colleagues and David, I mean, he was now surrounded by a group of neuroscience people. So they were aware of the fact that there was PET imaging. PET imaging did function, was able to obtain images of brain activity. And uh, it was based on blood flow changes and in principle relied and on the fact that or also PET data claimed that oxygen consumption did not change as well. So there was uh, some data out there that could suggest that deoxyhemoglobin can also be potentially a marker for brain function. So we have been, uh, I mean, Seiji and I and, and David at some point, and uh, we've been discussing then using this phenomena to do functional imaging. So today, people talk about functional imaging as bold fMRI in general, when we talk about the kind of gradient recall deco experiments that Seiji did. In terms of an imaging sequence, functional imaging in the human brain is not all that fantastically different than what Seiji did. But on the other hand, what I can say is that you asked me what is different between bold and uh, fMRI. So bold is in fact a very big component of uh, fMRI signals, but it's not the only component. So for example, Seiji and I, we did not think that fMRI would work at one and a half Tesla. So we actually uh, did not try. We had access to one and a half Tesla machines and we talked about it, doing fMRI, trying to do fMRI together, but we did not actually try to do it on a one and a half Tesla machine because we were focused on the deoxyhemoglobin effect, which is a susceptibility effect, and uh, it increases with magnetic field. Magnetic field is a very strong parameter that you know, it's, it plays a very strong role in this. And we didn't think that one and a half Tesla would be high enough to observe the effects that he was able to see in the rat, for example, at seven Tesla in a small animal machine. So we waited. Uh, it just so happened that I was actually in the process of pushing into high fields for spectroscopy reasons primarily, but you know, high fields being a very important parameter for the bold effect, we thought we would try it on the four Tesla system that I was waiting for. And when the four Tesla magnet came and it was operational, uh, that was the first experiment we tried on that system. 
was in fact the first human experiment I did in my life. So what was the first fMRI experiment that you did? Or what was the first experiment that you did in a human that really convinced you that fMRI was working? We learned from the pet people uh, we, uh, that they do a lot of visual uh, studies with uh, checkerboard glasses. So we got those and we got those working in the magnet. And so we then started trying uh, experiments, which was more or less kind of like the experiment of uh, fMRI today, although things have gotten quite a bit more sophisticated. Sure. But it was sure. just a simple task experiment. person was in the magnet. Uh, he was wearing these uh, goggles. Mm -hmm. Then uh, he was, of course, in the dark. At least uh, the eyes were in the dark within these goggles. And then the lights would come on and then the lights would... Uh, uh, go off and we would be acquiring uh, images one after another and looking for signal changes. Of course, fMRI signal changes are small and uh, when you are looking for them for the first time, then you need a lot of convincing and uh, so a lot of instrumentation development was necessary, a lot of programming had to be done. I mean, a lot of these things are today are taken for granted. Uh, things have evolved uh, so fantastically over the years. But at that time, we struggled to convince ourselves that there were signals, could this be motion, we had to eliminate that effect. We had to do experiments like hemifield stimulation, you know, because that would be a good argument against motion if you uh, were to go with one hemifield versus another hemifield going to different hemispheres. Yeah. So uh, those were experiments that uh, all of which uh, we did, and at some point, uh, yeah, we started consistently, you know, doing the various different control experiments and started consistently seeing these signal changes. So we were convinced. And so we wrote up a paper. We had nice data, some good images, submitted to Nature, and they rejected it. Yeah. We turned it around and submitted to PNAS. Now, of course, we never for let Nature forget the fact that... <laughs> Yeah, David never lets his graduate students forget it either. So you've alluded a couple of times to the fact that fMRI technology has evolved quite a bit as a technology, and you've had a central seat in observing that evolution. And neuroscience nowadays is exploding with new technologies, and I wonder if there aren't lessons to be learned about what makes for a scalable technology, or maybe what makes a technology development effort a successful one, in the sense that it takes root in the scientific community the way fMRI has. Of course, you know, I come from technology background. I mean, I believe in technology, and this is and what also gives me personal pleasure, I mean, as a physicist, you know, to develop new technologies to advance the biological uh, information that you get. But ultimately, you know, uh, technological advances, you know, whether it is at the molecular level, you know, sequencing or uh, being able to, you know, do something uh, with respect to instrumentation at fMRI or optogenetics, you name it. I mean, these are all technologies that ultimately make revolutionary changes uh, in our ability uh, to gather scientific information. And in fMRI, this was a, a really uh, wonderful area where sort of theoretical understanding of the physics of the fMRI signals, instrumentation, image acquisition schemes, and the brain physiology and coupling to neuronal activity. All of these things were areas that... Uh, you could actually look at and say, well, these are the areas that we have to improve to make this uh, technique uh, more informative. So we had to ask questions about, for example, the uh, accuracy of the blood flow response to neuronal activity. I mean, it's controlled by the vasculature, clearly. 
But how accurate are those changes? Uh, can you control them? Do they happen at the level of columns and layers, or are they in the centimeter scale? I mean, that would actually define the resolution, ultimate resolution of the fMRI signals. So we had to do a lot of animal experiments uh, in terms of understanding that aspect of it. There are still a lot to do in that respect, but you know, we did quite a bit of experiments, we and others, to pursue that. Second, uh, of course, there was the issue of what are the MR signals that we are seeing, and uh, they are, okay, deoxyhemoglobin-related maybe, but maybe there's some additional effects, and what is their field dependence? It turns out uh, that we, we did a lot of modeling, a lot of experiments to understand whether the models were uh, accurate or not, and uh, it was a situation where we had to understand these MR signals much more accurately in order to see if we can actually improve the technology. And then uh, in, from these models, you know, we always uh, came up with the fact that magnetic fields are very important, high fields are very important, so we had to push the instrumentation to get to those high fields. Well, when you go to high fields, the physics of interaction of radio frequencies with the human body becomes much more complex that we had to deal with that. And uh, so we actually published quite a lot of papers on just the physics of high radio frequencies that are required to do MR imaging at uh, high magnetic fields. You know, how, how that uh, affects, uh, we had to develop all new technologies that many patents and uh, so it was uh, it was a an area there was where there was a wealth of things that one could do in many different aspects and we were interested in all of them and we pursued all of them and i think that uh, all of these combined effects understanding the signals physiologically understanding the mr signals uh, in terms of where they're coming from pushing instrumentation pushing imaging acquisition and of course we are are not so active in data analysis aspect but that's an area in fMRI that has also defined new capabilities, new paradigms, etc. So that's the other area that has been very important. All of which, as after all of these things coming together, you know, fMRI has really made major advances. So speaking in terms of improvements in fMRI technology, I'm not an fMRI researcher, so in doing research for this talk, I was listening to a lecture you gave about the evolution of the technology, and I was frankly amazed at the magnitude of the improvements. I thought maybe you could just review for people what was really possible in the early 90s and uh, what is it that's possible now and perhaps what you hope uh, will be possible to see in the next decade or so. So, for example, uh, when fMRI came to existence at that time and then shortly thereafter, you know, it exploded, uh, essentially people were obtaining images in, say, 4 by 4 by 4 voxels, something like, uh, you know, 64, you know, cubic millimeters or so. And that was about the best you could do for a variety of reasons. And there were, there were a lot of questions as to whether fMRI, in fact, even if uh, the instruments were capable of providing higher resolution, whether the signals would ever get better resolution because of this physiological issue. Because the blood flow, is, the blood oxygen is just constant in a 4 millimeter region. So in optical imaging, in fact, there were optical imaging people, people that I respect very much, um, uh, Amiram Grinwald, and who had published papers uh, saying that, you know, blood flow responses are not specific, for example, to uh, cortical columns. He had a very colorful 
expression in one of his uh, papers uh, saying that looks like the brain waters the entire garden for the sake of a single thirsty flower. Uh, so there were issues about that and people did not think that you know fMRI uh, would have the capability to go to columns and things like that. We did not take a position on this. There were simply not enough data uh, uh, on that and we actually wanted to do uh, experiments to test those things, but we were very much interested to see what is the spatial resolution we can get to ultimately. If you think about, you know, 4 by 4 by 4 all right, uh, when fMRI came into existence, we are ecstatic. We can get human activity of the human, you know, every activity of the human brain, but so that's a big chunk of tissue. So for some, a lot of cognitive scientists, uh, the kind of questions that they're asking, given the fact that we were not able to ask any such questions about the human brain, that was a big advance. But where do you go from there? I mean, in terms of understanding brain function, understanding how neuronal processes are ultimately determining behavior, well, that's that's a rather coarse resolution. Of, of course, at that time, great. I mean, we are happy to have it. It's a very coarse resolution. So uh, we did pursue this issue. I mean, we published a paper in... PNAS 2001 or so in the CAT cortex, which is, I think, a very critical paper uh, in my mind. We didn't do bold. We actually did not do bold. We specifically did functional imaging just mapping blood flows. So you can do functional imaging just using blood flow. And uh, we had developed that uh, technique uh, here in CMRR. So this signal is just the proportion of a voxel which is filled with blood, or is it the speed for which the blood is flowing in that voxel? Yes, essentially. You can tag the blood. For example, you are interested in a particular slice, let's say. You can tag the blood outside of the slice, and you can watch it come into that slice, gotcha. essentially. It's a very simplified version of it. And this actually gives functional images as well. And In fact, we showed that that particular functional images are very accurate. You could map the orientation columns in the cat cortex, measured a point spread function for that, which was something less than a millimeter, I think 0.4 or something like this, I don't remember. So, then, uh, so if exactly. you're saying point spread function, then you you mean now that the physiological spread? Yeah. Yeah. So your spatial, your resolution of your imaging is actually now greater than the, than the, than the resolution of the physiological effect. Exactly. It's in, a, in, in an animal model, we could get very high resolution. We can scan for long periods of time. So we were able to demonstrate that blood flow is regulated at the level of uh, orientation columns. And uh, it's not 100% precise. In other words, for example, if you activate a particular set of columns of a particular orientation, the uh, blood flow increased 60% in those columns. But in the so-called non-active columns, blood flow increased only about 20%. So there was enough of a difference that you could actually map the image, the uh, orientation. So what it says, what it said was that, yeah, there's a sort of a non-specific component, but there's a very specific component um, which uh, allows you to map that. And then we uh, talked about, uh, I mean, I talk about sometimes then, well, the brain doesn't water the entire garden. It waters the thirsty flower, but sprinkles the garden. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That told us that we could, we should be able to get to this uh, kind of a uh, accuracy in the human brain. Unfortunately, CBF-based or blood flow-based functional imaging uh, doesn't have enough signal to noise really to be to reach those resolutions in the human brain. In the animal brain, you can do it. Uh, so we had to go back to bold, but bold has its own complications because it's not just blood flow. It is blood flow, oxygenation change, blood volume change. So it's a much more complicated model. 
but we were able to, uh, in fact, show that uh, you can map orientation domains in the uh, human brain. You can map uh, ocular dominance columns. And uh, we demonstrated, again, in the animal experiments and human experiments, yes, you can uh, see layer differences. You can actually have fMRI signals be specific to uh, different layers of the cortex. And then, in fact, uh, we mapped columns and layers together in the human area MT. It took a systematic effort of approximately, I don't know, uh, a decade and, and a half to get to that level, pushing the instrumentation, understanding the physiology, understanding uh, imaging signals. And we are at that level. And so, of course, I'm. Uh, this was kind of a major uh, push for us. I'm very pleased with the achievement. I scientifically felt extremely satisfied uh, when those uh, results uh, finally came into existence. But now you can ask questions, well, you know, what does a column do? I mean, is it just a single entity that does only one thing, which is most likely not true, because there are a lot of ex you know data that suggests that you know columns have maybe sub-column different properties. So we are, in fact, hoping to get to somewhat higher resolution. We are in the process of installing a 10.5 Tesla instrument, so where we can at least do columns very, very routinely, robustly, you know, the columns and layers, and maybe even ask questions at a sub-column level. At the Center for Magnetic Resonance Research, you lead a group of approximately 100 people working on developing MR technology and applying it to neuroimaging and occasionally body imaging. So my question is, how will you go about managing such a large group? What is your leadership style or philosophy and what kind of management techniques do you use? Well, the management style evolves all the time. And, <laughs> and well, first of all, uh, neuroscience is the major, major uh, focus, but it's not the only you know, focus, as you had alluded to, we also do body imaging. We have a relatively large engineering effort, uh, instrumentation effort, understanding RF interaction with human body. It's a lot of electromagnetic modeling effort. And then we have uh, animal model experiments uh, of the type that I mentioned to you, that human applications, human body applications. So these are all areas that are all very much linked to each other, and I think part of the success of this lab uh, relies on the fact that we have expertise in all of these areas, and they all interact with each other. For example, we have a center grant, so-called the P41 Biotechnology Research Resource. Stanford has one also, uh, but in our grant, uh, we have four core projects. One is neuroimaging, and the other one is body imaging at high fields. Uh, third one is... Uh, uh, RF engineering, and then fourth is uh, essentially so-called B1 management, but essentially new technologies of imaging at high fields. So these are all areas. So then you need many different people actually to cover that uh, very wide field. So we have you know physicists and electrical engineers, mathematicians, uh, neuroscientists, etc. Now, how do I lead all of this? Uh, and of course, it was once upon a time a small group and I was able to keep everything in my mind but it's not possible anymore and so we now have uh, faculty members essentially it's more like a department but it's a very different than a department whereas in a department you have a lot of individuals who have their own agenda and you know they work on their own research projects and research groups here we have many faculty members with different expertise but uh, there's an overarching goal and a theme so uh, my role more or less is uh, to provide the forces that bind them together so that it's actually an environment where uh, the various different uh, 
faculty members actually are providing complementary expertise. So finally, could you just give us a preview of what you plan to talk to us about when you come to Stanford? I think I'm going to talk about, for, to a certain extent, about what I've uh, mentioned. But I actually gave the topic uh, that I will talk about on the Human Connectome Project. I am not being extremely precise because I rarely prepare my talks way in advance. Uh, sure. sure. Uh, and, uh, but Human Connectome Project is a project that was launched a couple of years ago. Um, there are two major uh, consortia involved in it, and we are one of them, together with Washington University and Oxford, and then the other one is MGH. So we are the major consortia, and it involved a lot of technology development, again, to actually get to a point where we can actually infer connectivity in the human brain, either through uh, functional imaging, so-called resting state functional imaging, using uh, diffusion imaging, which gives you information about anatomical connectivity. I mean, there are still questions about both of those methodologies, and uh, we had to improve the technology, do a lot of validation, so, and we are now generating a database, and it has been uh, really a major development. Image acquisition schemes have improved uh, significantly as a result of this effort. We can now, for example, obtain whole brain, uh, uh, whole brain, I mean, I, I don't mean part of the brain, whole brain data in less than a second with a millimeter resolution. Uh, that has improved functional imaging, it has improved diffusion imaging, and we are now collecting data on twins and their non-twin siblings. The data are looking very interesting. We can actually see networks that people could not see before. We can distinguish, for example, uh, twins from non-twins very easily from the data. We can pull out very high correlations with IQ, etc. So that will be one of one component of my talk both to introduce the techniques that has made this possible and the kind of information that we are able to get from this human uh, connectome data. I think that I will also probably, where has fMRI gone or has arrived at, you know, uh, talk about this current uh, capabilities of fMRI, uh, what we can do with, uh, in terms of the spatial resolution, etc., which somehow ties with the human connectome project as well. So I will make a story on those two topics. Great. We look forward to it. So in closing, we like to ask a series of short, rapid-fire questions. So if you could go back in time and talk to yourself as a graduate student, and I mean you specifically, what advice would you give yourself? Uh, what advice? Um, never thought about that. <laughs> uh, to myself, I mean, I, I think that I, of course, uh, in some ways explored as a graduate student uh, for a while, right? I mean, I tried biology and uh, physics and I bummed around, if you like. Uh, if I look back, I think that was good. It actually gave me a much wider perspective and a uh, much wider exposure, and that has ultimately defined my career. So, so were you self-conscious about it at the time, that you were bumming around and not being as productive as some of your more focused colleagues? I felt lost at that time. <laughs> In some sense, it was a, it was a wonderful uh, thing to be lost. Uh, uh, I didn't know, you know, quite uh, what I wanted to do, and uh, well, I really knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't think that was a good career path, and uh, etc. And so uh, I, 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 and I did feel lo lost. But I guess my advice to myself now, going back, not uh, would be, don't worry about it. It was uh, don't feel lost. It was really great that you did all of those things. Uh, 
that I was exposed to biology and I, I was exposed to neuroscience. And of course, I was ex exposed to physics and today in sciences in general, of course, uh, we are so interdisciplinary and all of these exposures and uh, different information and uh, you know, comes in handy and I, it's, it defines my, my research. It was a very good thing to explore rather than immediately just dive into one thing. So this is a bit of an unfair question, but putting aside the applications of fMRI, what are some of the most interesting applications of magnetic resonance spectroscopy and imaging that you've encountered? I think this is the most interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Well, you know, in magnetic resonance imaging, the applications are immense. I mean, there isn't a field of, you know, biomedical research or biomedical sciences uh, that is untouched by magnetic resonance imaging, especially you start talking about human studies. I mean, you don't have a lot of technologies to be able to do that. So we do work on not just on the brain. I mean, brain is my, of course, my pet interest. And uh, But on the other hand, uh, we are also excited about a lot of other applications in the body. We are always open to no novel utilization of uh, NMR to get uh, new information. So you know, my wife, who's also a scientist and works with MR, you know, for example, uh, works on uh, cartilage imaging, and uh, they get extremely fantastic results in terms of imaging cartilage and for musculoskeletal uh, radiology and orthopedics. This is an ex extremely important area. In fact, she works on the hip uh, specifically, and the issue there is cartilage is extremely thin, and you need very high resolution. And to get to those high resolutions, you need potentially, for example, uh, uh, high fields. Then you get into this uh, incredible uh, difficulties of doing high field imaging in the human torso, which we solved. It's very exciting. So there are a lot of exciting possibilities outside of the brain as well. And uh, MR touches everything. Well, thanks so much for speaking with us today, Professor Robo. My pleasure. And thank you all for listening. We hope you join us next week when our guest will be Don Cleveland, a professor of molecular and cellular medicine at UC San Diego and the current president of the American Society for Cell Biology. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and myself. For more information about Neurotalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neuritewest.org.